welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 250. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week, trifecta special number 22. Three stories, three narrators, one theme. The theme of this trifecta, if you want something done right, you gotta do it yourself. Gonna start things off with a story by Joel Shulkin called The Faithful Servant. Joel's works appeared in Daikaiju Zine, Joyful, Long Short Story, and Short Humor Site. This story received an honorable mention from the e-zine Allegory. The story's read to you by the most congenial chap in podcasting, Alistair Stewart, from the horror fiction podcast Pseudopod. So without further ado, we bring you The Faithful Servant by Joel Shulkin. Hailstones pounded the roof. The wind howled. Flashes lit up the sky. Explosions rocked the mansion to its foundation. Mrs. Farnsworth's voice, as shrill as the chirping of the smoke detector, rose above it all. Geoffrey, my socks are wrinkled. Did you iron them? After slamming the dining room window shut and drawing the curtains, Geoffrey shouted, Not yet, madame. Geoffrey, you know I don't like wrinkled socks. Her voice reverberated from the stairway. Geoffrey braced his shoulder against a monolithic armoire and shoved. The fixture budged several inches and stopped. Geoffrey took a deep breath and heaved again. The armoire hopped over the carpet lip and slid across the hardwood floor. He nudged it until it blocked the window and, leaning against the cabinet, he swiped his sleeve across his forehead and caught his breath. Geoffrey! Now she was in the foyer. The Renoir is crooked. Fix it. Another explosion caused Geoffrey to jump. In a minute, madame! Geoffrey sprinted across the room to the kitchen, where he began tossing canned goods and unopened boxes of crackers into a cloth sack. He peered into a jar of peanut butter, wrinkled his nose, and set it aside. Geoffrey! Her voice grated like a rusted door latch as she moved into the sitting room. Why is my father's hunting pistol out of the display case? I'll take care of it right away, madame. His neck muscles tensed. He tossed an extra can of olives into the sack. Hefting the bag over his shoulder, he ran into the living room where he dropped the sack next to the suitcase. He glanced around the room. The windows were sealed. Doors barricaded. Bags ready. Geoffrey! Mrs. Farnworth padded into the room. She was dressed in a lavender nightgown and slippers. Her hair fell around her shoulders like a silver mane. She stared at the pink nylon suitcase in the centre of the room. What are you doing with my Radley? You've overstuffed it. Geoffrey grabbed the food sack. Madame, please get down to the cellar. We must hurry. As she glanced around the room, her eyes narrowed. Geoffrey, there are stains on the carpet. Did you let the dog in here again? Another crash, closer this time. Geoffrey forced composure into his voice. The dog is dead, madame. Please, we can't hurry any longer. She continued to glare at the carpet. Geoffrey, clean this up this instant. You know I hate spots on my carpet. But, madame, now, Geoffrey! The mansion shook. A flash lit the sky outside. Geoffrey opened his mouth to speak and then shut it again. His cheeks burned. He threw the sack to the floor. You know what? That is enough! Mrs. Farnsworth's eyes widened as she drew back. I have been a faithful servant to you for over twenty bloody years. 
Geoffrey clenched his fists by his side and locked his gaze with hers. You have done nothing but complain and complain and complain. It's always, Geoffrey, do this, and Geoffrey, do that, and do you ever thank me? Not once, not bloody once. You show your gratitude by complaining about something else. Well, I have had enough. He pointed outside. Do you have any idea what is going on out there? The world is coming to an end. That howling noise? That's not the wind. That's people. The crashing, booming, that's monsters. He paused to take a breath. His head was light, as if his newly developed backbone drew upon all his strength. She continued to stare, saying nothing. Oh, that's right, he continued. Monsters. They're coming for us. Our only hope is to gather whatever supplies we can and hide in the cellar and hope that tomorrow will be a new day. And you are worried about stains on the carpet. Down, Geoffrey. Her voice was barely a whisper. I will not back down, he puffed out his chest. You don't talk to me like the bloody dog. You can turn a blind eye to what's going on in the rest of the world, but you are not taking me down with you. I am in charge now. Geoffrey, don't you interrupt me. You never let me have my say. He hefted a suitcase with each hand. I am going to the cellar, with or without you. I'm no longer following your orders. Do you understand me? She held his gaze for another moment. Fine. Have it your way, and aimed her father's revolver at his head. His jaw dropped, and the suitcases slipped from his grasp. Madame, don't! The pistol fired three times. The bullets whizzed past his ear and thudded into something behind him. A gurgling roar cut through the air. Geoffrey whipped around to find a creature the size of a bear with the face of a wolf flailing its shaggy arms. Blood streamed from its chest. For a moment it teetered, its yellow eyes gleaming as it stared down at Geoffrey. Then, one more pistol crack, and a red spot appeared in the centre of its forehead. The creature crashed to the floor, lifeless. Geoffrey stared at the beast, his heart racing, and then slowly, he turned to Mrs. Farnsworth. Now, Geoffrey, she said as she emptied the spent shells and reloaded, I want you to iron my socks, reposition the Renoir, and get rid of the carpet stains. She jerked her chin towards the beast. And then, after you cover up that horrible creature, find the door you obviously forgot to barricade and make sure we have no more visitors. Locking her gaze with his, she cocked the gun. Am I understood? It took several attempts for Geoffrey to make his larynx produce any sound. When he finally found his voice, he could only stammer, Yes, Mum. A smile crept across her face. Thank you, Geoffrey. And our next story is called Selfless by Kenneth Cow. Ken's an active member of Codex Writers Forum and a graduate of Orson Scott Card's 2009 Literary Boot Camp. His fiction sold to daily science fiction and digital science fiction. This story originally appeared in Daily SF, April 2007. The story is read to you by John Smarr. 
John's an infectious disease physician in Baltimore, Maryland, who splits his time between treating horrors such as syphilis and molding the next generation of doctors while repeatedly washing his hands in between. When not herding his seven cats or going fanboy over the space endeavors of his wife, Moon Ranger Laura, John infects various podcast projects with his voice. He's the chief medical officer and bad doctor in residence at the Secret Lair podcast and blog at thesecretlair.com and ruminates over all manners of things at his personal blog, saintnickanuck.com. So without further ado, we bring you Selfless by Kenneth Cow. My name is John. I am... I have a wife and a daughter. They are visiting me today. Their names, Alice and Anna. I can see, sort of. Everything is blurry. I am submerged in a coffin, a clear coffin with green water. There's a tube in my mouth so that I can breathe machine-like. My legs are transparent. I see veins and arteries, thin muscles that look like spider webs bundled together. The doctors say my memory will be fuzzy. It's supposed to come back quickly. I am happy. I love my job. I work with credit. I help people fix their lives with financial counseling. But I have a disease. The spider webs are growing. Tiny red dots appear under my skin like fresh wounds bleeding. I see dark shadows outside the coffin. My wife? Beside her is another silhouette, a skinny teen with short brown hair. It is my daughter. I am sure of it. I had a disease. It was a flesh-eating bacteria, resistant to everything. It shut down my body, limb by limb, organ by organ. A sudden loud noise all around me. It sounds like a muffled engine blasting in my ears. It hurts, but fades, and becomes tolerable. My head, then, my face and chest, lift out of the water. Panic overwhelms me, and I grip the tube in my mouth with both hands. I pull, wanting to breathe on my own. Gloved hands catch my arms. I am frail. They tear my hands from the tube. Seconds later, something jerks from my stomach. The tube retracts. I gasp. The hands let go of me, and I wipe my face in one big stroke. Slimy green is everywhere. Alice and Anna, they are beside me, and their familiar voices are soothing and calming. Other voices, Dr. Holly Anderson and her assistant, I can't remember her assistant's name, they are speaking to my family. They explain that the treatment was successful. The treatment was successful. Alice leans over the BAC, biological accelerator chamber. She hugs me. I see her tears. I smell the acute smell of butter, coconut oil, and sweet bread. She had a pastry recently, probably from the local farmer's market. It is her comfort food. My daughter smiles at me, but does not approach. I wave her over, and my voice comes out, a deep and smooth baritone. Anna, come here. She hesitates, but she comes forward. How's your boyfriend doing? 
Jake, is it? Her mouth opens and closes like a fish. I laugh. He ain't the smartest, I say, imitating Jake's accent. But he's no lack of heart. I grin. I have a full set of teeth. Real teeth. Modern technology is amazing. Anna nods, smiles shyly, kisses me. Dad, I love... Dr. Holly cuts Anna off. She says they have to leave. I have to return to the BAC. I am suddenly confused. Something is wrong. The BAC should have accelerated my condition, right? I look at my legs. They are normal again. Better than normal. Even the old scar on my shin is gone. Alice and Anna leave. Dr. Holly comes around, looks at me. Above, at some monitors. Back to me. She isn't looking at me, though. It's this cold and calculated thing. She's studying me, like a bug. I don't like it. She leaves the room without a word. They do not resubmerge me. Instead, minutes tick by. I can count them by my heartbeats. I've had 60 beats to the minute. Exactly. Dr. Holly returns. She carts a man with black hair and a stubble on his chin. He has bandages around most of his face. Only his eyes and mouth show. He is crippled. He is me. You are a clone, he says. My clone. I've already realized it. My legs are whole. My scars are gone. I must be the clone, even if my mind believes that I am not. As your memory comes back from the cellular holographic imprints, you'll remember that there is no cure for my disease. You'll remember that we want my family to have a whole husband and a whole father, and that my wife and daughter have been misled. More and more memories of everything. The discovery that an entire human's memory is stored within each cell, and that with more cells, the details of memory, like increased pixels on a screen, are improved. I have one request. He narrows his gaze on me. I know what he is going to ask. It is what I want, too. You can never tell the truth of who you are. I understand. I want my, his, wife and daughter to have a good life, unburdened by my illness. I promise, I say. He stares at me and nods. But both of us know that I will tell them someday, once he is gone. It is our personality. I'll visit and I'll tell you about them, I say, choosing my words carefully. I don't say us. He smiles and mostly relaxes. I'd like that, he answers. But there is a gleam in his eye. I know it is jealousy, and I am afraid, because I am just a clone. I don't have his disease. I will change just as he will change, and we will soon no longer be the same. And where there is one clone, there can always be another. I'll do anything you want, I say.
And for our final story, we bring you Prophecy Negotiations by Rich Matrunik. Rich lives in Mabane, North Carolina with his wife and daughter. His stories have appeared in Ray Gun Revival, Electric Spec, and Stupefying Stories, and will be appearing in issue number eight of Bull Spec. You can follow his infrequent updates at richmatrunik.com. So without further ado, we bring you Prophecy Negotiations by Rich Matrunik. I'm a farm boy and a jackass. They exist, I assure you. And they're all still alive, I can assure you that too. Thing is, we don't go parading off with the first wizard that waltzes into town, offering up prophecy and the like. Nah, that's a do-gooder's mistake. Half those rookie do-gooders end up dead, and I'm of the belief that the other half deserve to. Frankly, they ruin it for the rest of us. See, I'm a jackass, but I'm no fool either. That's why I always turn down the first wizard. Sure, I'll try all sorts of guilt trips on you, and a heap of promises about hidden powers and whatnot on top of that. What he doesn't tell you is that you're pretty much on your own from here on out, and those powers will turn out to be more trouble than they're worth. If you're lucky, he'll give you a sword or something. If you're even luckier, the sword won't be a pain in the ass to use. Wizard number two, now, that's where things start to get interesting. I mean, prophecies need to be fulfilled, no doubt about that, and there's more than one wizard who wants to put his stamp on the thing. Wizard number two is usually a get-in, get-out, get-done kind of guy. Magic horse, magic airship, magic eagle, magic rocket-propelled dwarf. Whatever it is, it's bound to be magic, and it's bound to be a hell of a lot better than walking. If you're a gambling man, a good magic portal can take the whole travel nonsense out altogether. Not for me, though. I don't even want a fraction of a chance that I'll come out on the other side with my head glued to some horse's ass. I can't say I much like wizard number two's offer, though. Getting there faster does have its benefits, but you lose out on a whole bunch of booze and busty barmaids along the way. With wizard number three, now, you start to see a big improvement on offers. We're talking armies here, magical or otherwise, that can do a good deal of the grunt work for you. The non-magical ones are especially good at soaking up fireballs and lightning or huge boulders before they get too close for comfort. Nothing worse than coming home for a victory party with your eyebrows singed clear off. Wizards 4, 5, and 6 you can usually get in pretty good bidding war with. Just remember that no request is too outrageous. You want the power to shoot lightning bolts out of your left nostril? <laughs> well, if Wizard 4 won't grant it, 5 sure as hell will, and 6 will throw in the right nostril for free. Point being, by the time these windbags are done with their back and forth, the ante should at least be up to a magic sword, a minimum of two magic rings, a pet dragon, or griffin, depending on your hemisphere, an army, a spare army that pops out of a magic horn or lute or banjo, and three well-endowed women to accompany and fight over you along the way. I'll admit, I didn't get past wizard number six. I accepted his offer, killed the Dark Lord, and returned home without so much as a scratch on me. Set to marry the princess in a month. All in all, I'd say the quest was pretty darn refreshing, actually. But then there's this thing with Dark Lords. They don't just like to stay dead. Some jerk of a wizard, turns out it was number four, brought him back for another go-round. Even meaner and badder this time, if that can be believed. Naturally, the wizard parade started all over again. 
So that's where we stand now. I'm way past Wizard 6 at the moment. Past 10. Past... I believe I'm... I'm somewhere in the high teens. Can't throw a stone without hitting a damn wizard these days. This guy, though, this wizard 20-something, now he's got one hell of an offer. Good angle. Seems he can turn me into a wizard. Pointed hat and magic staff and everything. Meaning I could go get me a farm boy to whack the Dark Lord for me. I mean, sure, I may have to occasionally pop in to check up on him and whatnot, but it would be his bacon on the line. He can deal with the rocket-propelled dwarf. <laughs> no wonder there's so many damn wizards. trifecta hope you enjoyed if you did hey three great stories for absolutely nothing fantastic deal huh we can only do it through the here and there support of generous listeners such as yourself that donate to the podcast to help us pay for all the costs involved if you're feeling big-hearted this week drop by drabblecast.org and click one of the support options we really appreciate any amount you're able to give folks Ooh, and we've got some good stuff coming up in store for you folks this next month. It's HP Lovecraft Tribute Month here on the Drabblecast, which means a whole month of diverse, original stories commissioned by the Drabblecast, all giving nods to the godfather of weird fiction himself, Howard Phillips Lovecraft. We've got a great line of spanking new stories by some of your absolute favorite authors ready to go, culminating in... Get ready. You may want to sit down for this. Another big, awesome Elizabeth Bear, Sarah Monette space opera set in the same weird and unique universe as Drabblecast 202's space pirate story, Boojum, and Drabblecast 170's People's Choice Award-winning story, Mongoose. This one, though, is first appearing here on your favorite podcast, commissioned by us, written for us, just because fan reaction was so huge to the last two Bear Manette pieces set in this universe. And you know we're going to do it up all full cast and big screen for the ears again, just like the previous two. So you have that to look forward to. Commissioning original stories is one of our favorite things to do here on the Drabblecast, bringing into existence new pieces of literature, new worlds, by modern professional writers. It's an honor, a really fun one, but not a cheap one. So, if you'd like to help us out, the option is always there with the support options at the top of Drabblecast.org. Alright, moving on to our 100 character story winner this week. Yes, that's an entire story written in only 100 characters, the after dinner mint here on the show. This week's comes from Drabblecast forum member Astro Guys with this one. The pancakes attained sentience. Bill shook his fist at the charred landscape. You blew it up, you damn dirty crepes! Doctors A's, Doctors A's. We've got a section in the discussion forums at Drabblecast.org labeled TwitFic, and that's where you can post 100 character stories to be considered for our weekly contest, and we hope you will. The rest of y'all can follow the Drabblecast to get the winners early each week on Twitter at the Drabblecast. So that's our show, folks. Remember, Drabblecast is produced with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change or sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes or wherever you pick up our show. Blog about us. Tell a friend. Spread the weird. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, artist Liz Pennies. We appreciate it, Liz. 
So, our program is brought to you by myself, Nikki Drayden, managing editor, our submissions editor, Nathan Lee, editor at large, Matthew Bay, our art director, Bo Kyer, and with additional help from Tom Baker, David Carvin, David Steffen, Jake Webb, and Jonathan McNeil. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman, reminding you, if wizard number four won't grant it, five sure as hell will. Thank you.